What is up, crew? Welcome to another CloverTech podcast here. Going to bring in here in uh, just a minute, Logan, from High Caliber History, talk about some antique firearms and uh, probably museums and just all kinds of other stuff. So if you're looking for vacation spots, well, Logan may be able to give us some tips on that uh, in particular. Uh, before we do that, though, uh, it is October 21st. I always like to throw that out there just in case. Speaking of, uh, of October the 21st, that means it is YouTube payday. So I need to go check my bank account because I may have some of that sweet, sweet YouTube money sitting around. You never know. Uh, as always, scrolling down below is a big thanks, of course, to the Patreon patrons, the YouTube channel members, those folks that drop super chats, as well as those that shop over at uh, clovertech.com slash shop speaking of that i should be picking up an order of blue i think green i think green and blue caps for the uh, store tomorrow so if you've been waiting on those check the store about this time tomorrow tomorrow evening uh so with that that's enough bloviating i don't like to uh, run on and on forever let's bring him in the uh man the myth the legend uh, logan from uh high caliber history what's happening bro Hey, how are you? I am well. So what have you been up to lately? What's your latest exploits? Oh, man. Well, really, the latest exploit, we've just been been busy getting things squared away. I moved recently, and so trying to get, get the office unpacked and get all the, the library set up and the safes moved and, and all that in there, on top of still trying to research and and do other things. So it's, it's, uh, it's been a very different kind of busy, um, but better busy than bored. Right. Right. Uh, now <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna get into some deep stuff. I'm sure here before too long, uh, just real quick for anybody out there. If you've got questions, uh, for Logan, as we're moving forward, uh, type at CloverTac, all one word, the at symbol CloverTac in the chat, ask your questions, or you can super chat it, uh, either way. Uh, you want to do it, it's fine, and we'll uh, get those up and uh, and ask Logan. Also, there is a poll out there, if you've seen that or not, and we'll uh, check on that poll a little later on, but it's asking how many of you out there own uh, what would be considered an antique firearm pre uh, pre-1898. So, Logan's raising his hand. Yeah, <laughs> I am. I, I think it would be interesting if the yeses do not take it, but we've got a lot of new folks in the, uh, in the firearm world. And, you know, unfortunately, and, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this with new people coming into the firearm world. Do you, do you think they're more interested in the historical, the cool old stuff, or is it more the tactical side of things and maybe self-defense? You know, that's a really good question. And I think the answer is yes. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I, I I think that one leads to the other uh, and, and the other way around. Um, I think folks tend to come into our world through one avenue and then they realize that we are a really big world and, and they branch out and find their niche in one way or the other. And, you know, everything old is new again. And everything that we see modern in the industry today is standing on the shoulders of the stuff that came before, you know, so chances are the, the new latest and greatest tactical gun or gadget has a very old predecessor uh, that it is building upon. And, you know, I, I see it 
all the time in looking through patent records of stuff, you know, that's been patented, you know, just say within the last decade and you go and look into the patents that they've cited and you'll see stuff, you know, dating back 50, 60, 70, a hundred or more years uh, because everyone is taking advantage of, of all of the old stuff that came first and not, not reinventing the wheel. Cause there's no need to do that, but just improving upon it and making it roll a little smoother, you know? Right. Um, now before we get, uh, we get too deep, uh, we're gonna figure out my chat here real quick, by the way, for those in replay, uh, you can always join us live as we record these and get your uh, questions answered and all that good stuff. Sometimes we read comments as well. Uh, depends on how pithy they are. So, uh, gunpowder beauty, uh, out there missed it. There it is. Uh, it's got a question for you. Logan says, what's your, uh, well, she's asking, I guess, mine. She says, what is your and the guest favorite antique firearm? So uh, can you even choose at this point? <laughs> That's like asking someone if they have a favorite kid, right? You know, I mean, everyone's got one, but uh, I, I think it's it's hard to pick one. And it's that's tough. I It, it really is tough. I'm uh, I would have to say, though, um, I am a huge fan of early American Marshall Flintlock long arms. Um, and, and that might seem incredibly specific, uh, and it's cause it is, um, right. <laughs> uh, and, and more so because, uh, those early guns all have different variations of the American Eagle engraved on the lock plate. Um, and I love seeing how the Eagle changed over the years and so they changed the number of feathers. Sometimes he's facing a different way. Um, ones that come out of Springfield Armory are different than the ones coming out of Harper's Ferry. Um, and I just, it's just one of those funny little things that I just, I just think it's really cool. So yeah, very early American Marshall long arms. Now, as far as the engravings on those, uh, on those rifles, I'm assuming all done by hand. Did they have templates? Do you know the process that they used to engrave those? Yeah, it was, it was standardized to, to an extent, you know, to as much as, as there can be, uh, an extent. And so, you know, you're, you're not seeing wild artistic interpretations from one gun to the next, um, they, they do have standards in that regard. Um, but it's, you know, but it's certainly nowhere as streamlined nowadays as with, well, I was going to say roll dies, but we've gone past that to laser engraving stuff now. Right. Um, so, so yeah, they, they had guidelines, um, and they kept with them, but you, you will see some, some artistic difference here and there, depending on which arsenal it's coming out of. Right. So they more or less gave the uh, gave the folks a picture, I guess, and said, "Draw this." Essentially, is that sort of how they did it? <laughs> yeah, I guess you could you could probably say that's probably how it started. And there's I've got an entire book that's just called uh, "Eagles on U.S. Arms," uh, mm -hmm. and and it goes over the entire history and all the different variations and changes that that the eagle went through. And and that book is fascinating to me, and it really sparked my interest i think in in looking at the the different variations of the eagle and uh you know those those very early arms are quite expensive 
but what is less expensive uh, are just the individual lock plates that you know have come off of broken guns or discarded guns and so i have a, a collection of just lock plates um nice. with with the different eagles from the different armories and so it's that's a an inexpensive way to get into antique arms collecting right now you mentioned the books uh, it's a good time to mention that i do have your youtube as well as your instagram linked down in the description below not only while we're recording live here but in the replay wherever you're at should have that below as well as far as the books uh, where can folks find those if they're curious Oh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the really good books are out of print uh, uh, anymore. And so a big uh, used bookstore, maybe. <laughs> yes. And that, yes, uh, you're exactly right. And that's where I have found a lot of mine is I've had good luck at used bookstores. Um, and, you know, sometimes on eBay, not so much on Amazon, but, uh, you know, sometimes you find them on eBay um, go to library sales, you know, I, I don't know how it is around you guys, but most of the local libraries around me, you know, a couple times a year, they have a sale and you never know what's going to turn up in those as well. Um, but there are some, you know, different, uh, different publication companies that are still around and, and are coming back or, and growing, you know, we've got, uh, We've got um, with Ian at Forgotten Weapons. He's he's got uh, Headstamp Publishing with a couple other guys that's putting out new stuff, which is great. Of course, uh, Collector Grade Publications. Now they're uh, I think they're going to be winding down with things, but they've got uh, a number of fantastic titles that that you can still find. Um, and it's it, it's catch as catch can, you know, uh, they're they're not always going to be the easiest thing to find mm -hmm. um, because what we deal in is often very specialized. So they probably weren't done in large runs anyway. Um, uh, but but the information is out there. But, you know, you, you're going to you're going to pay for it uh, and you're probably going to pay handsomely for it. But that's OK. Uh, because one expensive book is still cheaper than one expensive mistake in buying, you know, something that's been faked or forged. Um, you know, so you're gonna, you're gonna save yourself some money in the long run. So, right. Yeah. Now, as far as like, uh, like blue book press, I know that they've got, they've got a wide variety of things. You got any experience yeah. with the stuff they put out there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Steve Feastead, uh, he's he passed away a couple of years ago now, but Steve Feastead was the the publisher of Blue Book for decades, um, and he was he was a very good friend of mine, um, and he was a huge early adopter and early supporter of high caliber history. Um, in fact, he was one of the the big pushes that. He pushed me to go out on my own, leave the museum and, and do uh, do high caliber history full time. Um, they've got great stuff. Gurney Brown is is putting out stuff for them on the, the Colt double action revolvers and, you know, uh, and all the different snake guns. And um, Steve rescued an NRA museum publication that I had worked on right around the time that I was leaving the museum. Um, you know, as far as the value guides go on that. You know, every everybody wants to everybody wants to buy at the blue sure. book price. You know, yeah. uh, I'm not talking about the not really talking about the value guides, and I do sure. own them. Uh, yeah, 
mainly because I don't even care about the prices. I just like it has production years, production numbers, yes, the variance in there and, and all of the different subtleties and stuff. It lists all of that information. That's why yeah. I like that one. It, it's it, it's not in depth about any one particular firearm, but it's right. enough information to kind of get you started, right? Right. Um, and yeah. So that little I nugget. think it's a right. And it's definitely one if you're going to a gun show or something like that that having that around and, and at least having that in the vehicle, whether or not you take it into the gun show, you don't necessarily have to, but at least have it right. in the vehicle. That way, if you see something, you can always run out to the vehicle and thumb through it and, and, uh, well, and take a look. Well, and they've made it even easier because they've, uh, they've got it. You can, get as an, you can get an online subscription. So I, yeah, I, I log in and pull it up on my phone and, uh, cause Lord knows, I mean, that's a weighty tome to, to carry around, you know, it is. Uh, so, and the, so, so yeah, having it on the phone is great. So since you have it on, you've got it online. So I've got a question about that um, because obviously they can't, they can only make it so big. Right. Right. So it goes without saying that they have to drop things from year to year, publication yep. to publication. They almost have to. Um, does, is the online more complete than the book? Uh, yeah, I, b I believe it is. And, uh, you know, because they can update and add things um, with with a lot more ease and frequency. You know, they don't have to wait for the next publication cycle to roll around. So, um, yeah, I, I believe that they do make an attempt to keep that uh, more current throughout the year than you would get with just the book. And, and yeah, like you said, you know, with with the bandwidth versus the page length. Um, you're right. They do drop things from year to year and that's just, that's the nature of the beast. Yeah. So we've got a, a couple of questions out here. Uh, Rich White out there. He said pre 1873 revolver question, uh, 1858 okay. Remington self-contained cartridge conversion or 1870 Colt open top. What's the preference? I'm going to go with 58 Remington. Um, mainly because I am a fan of the solid frame on that. I think it's just uh, a lot more sturdy of a gun and more sturdy design. Um, plus I think it looks better too. There's just something about that Colt open top that is very much the redheaded stepchild to me. I've just never, I've never warmed up to it. Right. Now, uh, gunpowder beauty out there. Got another one, by the way. Uh, toss those uh, questions out there. Type at CloverTac, the at symbol CloverTac, uh, or you can super chat them and we'll uh, bring them up. But Gunpowder uh, Beauty says, uh, what would you say is the perfect barrel length on pistols, old and new? So with the older cartridges specifically, uh, I don't, I know it's going to be caliber specific, right? Regardless. Right. Um, right. So with a lot of the older stuff, Give us, can you give us some examples of kind of what was optimal with those? Because they do say, I've heard it said anyway, like the Colt Walker was the most powerful handgun in the world there for a long time. Was yep. there an optimal barrel length for it to achieve that, for example? Right. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, when you're dealing with uh, with black powder cartridges and even some of the early smokeless powder cartridges, the longer the barrel, the better. I mean, it's one of those things that still holds true today, right? You know, you're, you're going to get better velocity and accuracy out of a longer barrel uh, than you are, you know, out of, out of a little snubby. 
Um, and it, it, it just like it is today, same as it was then, it, it depends on what you're trying to do with that gun, you know, is, right. is it right. going to be a gunfighter gun, you know, well then, you know, you may want that seven inch barrel or is it a poker table belly gun and, you know, you're going to lop it down to two and a half inches or, or less. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it just depends on what you're doing, but yeah, I get, especially when you're dealing, like I said, with, with the black powder cartridges, uh, you know, if you get too short, you're, you're going to be spitting out a lot of unburnt powder because it definitely burns slower uh, than smokeless powder. So uh, right. if you have that longer barrel length, you know, you're going to get more burn time uh, and you're going to have more power coming out of that cartridge. Now, I'm going to bring this up. This is not a question, but it is an example of some uh, comments out there that, you know, we can address and Chris out there says antiques are just too expensive for something you're probably not going to shoot and enjoy. So uh, I'll let you come in on this in a second, Logan, but I want to say I own antique. I own pre 1898 stuff. Now, a lot of the cartridge stuff, I will fire wax slugs or something like that uh, just to get out and, and run something through it and have a little fun. Uh, and a wax slug at five or ten yards on a steel target does kind of make a little bit of noise. Um, and you can enjoy it. And, you know, I picked up antique. Antique does not mean expensive. A lot of people think that. But, you know, when you're talking especially late 1880s through, you know, and I know ATF's definition, right, of antique is anything pre-1898. For me, antique, early 1900s in my mind, I'm still thinking antique. And you can pick up a lot of that stuff, uh, you know, something that may not look the best, but is functioning, a little 32, uh, you know, break action revolver or something like that for, you know, sometimes you can find those for 100, 125 bucks that work. So, yeah, uh, I would say, yeah, don't don't think that's the case because that's not always the case, at least in my experience. Now I know you Logan handle a lot of real high end stuff, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, don't get me wrong. Antique arms are a fantastic investment. They have been for years and years and years, decades. Um, and you know, and you can, you know, five digit, six digit, seven digit, you know, guns. Um, and, and I've been fortunate enough to handle a lot of them and yep, you're right. You're, you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you know, enjoy them. You're not taking, you know, a a $600,000 revolver out and shooting it. It's an investment. Just like, you know, if, if you invest in precious metals, you know, do you, do you sit around with, you know, a hundred, silver rounds you know ounces of silver and do you play with those do you stack those no not really they kind of sit on a shelf or in a safe deposit box because it's an investment but you're right antique doesn't need to be expensive for example you know if you're dealing with you know like look at Ivor johnson harrington and richardson um you know a number of those companies that were in business like you said in the late 1800s early 1900s um, you can still pick those up, you know, for a couple hundred bucks a pop. And because they're still, you know, fairly inexpensive, you don't have to feel guilty about going out and shooting those guns. Um, and, and because they're inexpensive, you can put together, you know, an entire production run type collection of these guns for less than what you might spend, you know, like on a Winchester, uh, one of 1000. Um, in fact, you know, I have seen, 
for example, it uh, was Ivor Johnson. I have seen a guy who has an entire type collection of Ivor Johnson uh, revolvers. You know, he's got every single one of them and it's a ton of guns. And I guarantee he's got less money tied up in that entire collection than, you know, most of the high end collectors have in, in one or two guns. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, and it's also not to say that, that big money guns can't, uh, and shouldn't be shot. Um, for example, uh, one of the wealthiest gun collectors that, that we had out there and he, passed away and I think it was 2007 was Bob Peterson, the publishing magnate of, of uh, um, you know, hot rod magazine and Peterson's hunting and, and all that. Um, and Bob owned tons of six and seven figure guns. And his motto was guns are meant to be shot. And he owned thousands of guns and he pulled the trigger on everything that he owned at least once um, because he could for, for one. And because they're, they're tools, they're meant to be used. They're meant to be shot. Um, you know, and you clean them properly and put them away. I, I don't, I don't own anything that I haven't shot at least once. There's some stuff that right. maybe I probably shouldn't have, but whatever, it's mine. I'm going to do with it as I please. Right. So, right. yeah. So I don't have anything. If we're talking antique, if we're talking classic, if we're talking vintage, if we're, you know, that genre, right. Way back. Um, I don't own anything that, and I won't own anything that I can't shoot. I don't do the wall hanger. I cannot handle the rusty double barrel, you know, uh, hammered shotgun hanging over the fireplace with no stock. And I can't, I can't handle that. I can't do it. Right. Sure. It's like, I'm going to turn that over to somebody that enjoys that. I'll, you know, flip it to them and put that money towards something else. Right. Uh, yeah. If I pick one up and I'm going to tinker around with it, let's say it's an eight, late 1800, early 1900 little revolver or something. If I can't figure out a way to get it fixed and working, I'll flip it. I'll flip it to somebody that's making a shadow box or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, so I feel you. Now, the one thing I don't want to say that I don't, because you're talking about, you talk about the investment side. I view firearms as an investment you can play with. You're right. There are some people that have gold and silver, and they probably can do the Scrooge McDuck and go swim in it, and they enjoy that. Um, I don't have that much gold and silver, first of all. Uh, I don't have enough to fill a coffee mug, let alone a, you know, anything I can right swim in. You. However, firearms are something that are an investment, whether it's old or new. Um ammunition the same way it's an investment that you can also enjoy if you keep everything properly maintained now with that being said do i have some short run collectible special edition stuff new in the box that i've never fired yes i do um but i view that differently than something that's old that i picked up you, you feel right. what i'm saying that's to me that's kind of in a that's more of an investment side thing and so it's not really a wall hanger uh but it is a safe queen or, or look pretty right you you pull it out you show your friends you take some instagram pictures every now and then uh but you never chamber around or, or do anything else with it uh, and i've got several that you know i gave a few hundred bucks for back in the day uh mm -hmm. and just never got around to shooting them and then all of a sudden somebody says oh you got what and i'm like yeah i never shot it and they're like you know 
have you seen what they're going for? You know, and you look it up and whether they stop the production run or whatever the case may be, they are, they're fairly well sought after. And so, right. um, you know, I just, I don't know. I think there's a, a difference there. Um, we did have, was that Ben out here? That was Ben out here, Logan. That says, uh, he says, is there a reloading guide for black powder cartridge reloading, uh, for foreign guns like Martini Henry? He said it's not e- uh, as easy as forty five ninety and so on. Right. That's Ben. That's a that is a great question, um, and it is something that I am not ashamed to say I don't know because uh, <laughs> right. I don't want to steer because I don't want to steer you wrong with that. Um, reloading is is not something that I've gotten into, um, and so I'm not terribly current on you know different stuff. But with that said. Uh, I do know that there are enough guys out there uh, shooting interesting oddball calibers, um, you know, and like you said, once you once you get up past 4590 and things like that, and you know, you're dealing with the Martini Henry, you got to be real careful and real particular about the loads. I know there are a lot of guys out there that are shooting those still, uh, and they are working up their own loads with stuff like that. So uh, let, let your fingers do the walking, do some, some searches on some message boards or, or even some, some Zuck book uh, groups. You might be able to find some stuff in there. Um, it's, it's out there. I, I guarantee that it's out there. Um, it's just, it might not be uh, in as tidy of a format as any kind of a regular reloading manual that you might find from Hornady or whatever. Right. And I think one of the, I think one of the things, so when, you know, when I hear that about black powder and what are we talking, you know, black powder cartridge, or you're talking the muzzle loading aspect or something like that. I think the, the problem is there's so much, correct me if I'm wrong on this. There's so much variance in that, Sure. that to be able to put, you know, what, what cartridge is it, right? What firearm is it being used in? What there's, as opposed to like modern, nine millimeter right and the reloading manual for that or 223 or 308 or something like that sure it's a different it's a totally different scenario right because you've got the different metallurgy to think about right not all yep um you know antiques you had you know various types of metallurgy that was being used back in the day and that's going to play into that load data just as much as uh anything else so uh, i agree with you i agree with you it's it's kind of an apples and oranges thing that you uh, and I get the sentiment. I get what Ben's asking out there because, you know, depending on what he's got, it could be like a needle in a haystack trying to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As a, it, it as a reloader, as a le- reloader for smokeless. And, you know, I do shoot black powder and other things. Start low and work it up is, you know, that's <laughs> usually what I say. And at the point you can have fun with it, stop. Yep. You know what I mean? Um, yep. That's, that's exactly. my, that's my take on it. Right. I'm not looking to, to, for a high powered hunting load or anything like that. You know, if I'm talking about one of my older firearms, it's like, I'll load it up until the point that it makes the steel go ting just a little bit. And I can hit right. with it, you know, with the sights, they're close enough and I'm done. You know, uh, that's if I don't shoot wax slugs, which more often than not with some of the revolvers, that's what I do. That's cheap. That's a primer and, and some, uh, and some, you know, and some wax. So right. Nothing to yeah. It. Yep. Yeah. Definitely got to be careful. Cause there's a lot less consistency to the older stuff. And 
Oh man, yeah. The the last thing you want to do is is have a have a kablooey uh, when you're out there just trying to have a little bit of fun. You know, I I would uh, I would not want to be working up a, a full charge on a on a you know a forty five one ten. You know, uh, right. and trying trying to pull some quigley down under stuff and and right. end up blowing it up. You know, right. So. So we got Lucy out there dropping a five spot in a super chat just to say, hey, everyone. So uh, thank you for that, uh, Lucy. We appreciate it. Uh, and then we've got uh, Bull Thrush up here for, uh, I guess it was Ben that had that question. So the Cap and Ball Channel, Cap and Ball Channel, might have some reloading uh, info for European guns. So if you don't, I'm not aware of that channel. So uh, mm-hmm. check it out, uh, Ben. Uh, and this is an interesting, we've had uh, several talks around the firearm community lately about NFTs. And I don't know if you even know what they are. The G-Web says, any thoughts on NFTs of historic, unique guns to help out firearm museums? So I guess he's talking about maybe museums creating NFTs and auctioning them off or something. Right. Yeah, I I, I am aware of the concept of an NFT um, much like cryptocurrency, I won't pretend to understand how any of it works. Um, I do know that there is money in it for some things. Um, I'm not sure that I see where the value of it could be in our community. You know, for example, you know, you could do an NFT of the Mona Lisa. You know, there's there's only one physical Mona Lisa, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, but let's say, you know, with a Colt Walker. Now, granted, there are, you know, a lot fewer of them, you know, than the original thousand that were made, but there are still multiples of them out there. Um, and and same goes with, you know, if you're dealing with a, a, a Winchester one of 1,000, or if you're dealing, uh, you know, with a first year of production Colt Python, uh, you know, there's there's stuff that's very collectible in our community. Um, and, and by the very nature of what our community is, they're not one-offs, you know, they, they may well be masterpieces uh, in and of their own right, but for the most part, there's multiples of them. Right. And, and I just, when, when there is so much money to be made uh, in, in the physical guns themselves, I just don't see where it, where that would translate, uh, in, in our community. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, now granted there's a lot of debate around which, uh, which surviving Walker was, is actually Captain Walker's Walker, but, but were we to be able to pin it down to, to, and say without a shadow of a doubt that we know which one was Walker's Walker personally, if it were me, uh, and I was given the choice between spending, you know, let's say, you know, a thousand dollars on having an NFT of, of Walker's Walker or spending a thousand dollars on a new birdie reproduction of Walker's Walker. I'm throwing my money at that reproduction because I can actually enjoy that. And I think that's a big part of where our community differs from the art community, you know, that their stuff is meant to be put up on a wall and looked at and not really touched. And that's, mm-hmm that's just not how we work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's more, I see the NFT thing and I certainly don't want to go down, chase this rabbit hole too deep, but I see the NFT thing is potentially something that is kind of a sub niche type thing. 
Um, mm-hmm. Could it help maybe bring more people to actual tangible firearms? Could it maybe could it maybe broaden the technical horizons of other people? Right? Could you get collectors that have large collections that eventually get into the NFT? Um, and so we would have to go into a whole probably half hour of trying to talk about NFTs and what they are to explain the origination and the authentication and all of the other various things. But, I, you know, I do think there's some cool things that potentially could be done uh, mm-hmm. that can be you know beneficial in the community. Um, let's see what we've got uh, here. We did have uh, Ricardo Lucy out there. He says, uh, anybody ever shoot a musket? Well, if you're talking about smoothbore, you know, um, I'm sure Logan has. He can probably tell us about it. I have, of course. I don't own one, oh, but yeah. I have. But um, yeah. what are some of the stuff you've uh, you've handled before in the musket genre? Is there anything worth talking about? Um, you know, nothing, nothing super impressive. Uh, you know, I've, I've held what I, you know, guns that I think are cool. Um, you know, early stuff that has been stamped U States, you know, or United States branded in the buttstock or has, has had a U.S. stamped in the lock plate. And some of that are foreign arms or contract arms and stuff. And, and I think that's really cool. And, um, you know, some, some of my favorite ones, uh, some of the muskets out there are, uh, you know, the British made guns that have been stamped with a U.S. surcharge on them uh, from the Rev War era. And to me, that's, you know, that that's one of the ultimate, you know, FUs to to King George III. You know, we're going to take one of your guns, stamp our surcharge on it and then shoot your guys with it. <laughs> um, so from a history standpoint, yeah, I just I think that's really cool. And and to to see the branding in those stocks is is pretty neat and it's kind of unique. I've seen ones, um, you know, stamped to different colonies. I've seen ones stamped for Virginia, for the Carolinas. I've seen them even stamped to individual towns. Uh, I've handled a couple that are actually stamped, you know, town of Boston, uh, on there, which is, which is really, really cool. So. So we've got, uh, G webs out there was following up and, you know, it's valid point. You said people in places that can't own a gun, you know, could own the NFT. Uh, and yeah, if you're talking about a worldwide type system, especially, right? I mean, sure. somebody in another country that maybe has a, a fascination with, you know, the American West, for example, right? Some of the more famous guns, if there was NFTs on the market for those, you know, what kind of money would they be willing to pay to own the NFT version of that? Right. Um, bragging, bragging rights is about all that uh, that amounts to. Um, yep. So before we get into, I've got some, uh, I've got some questions talking about some of the cooler things. I want to definitely hit on some of the cooler things that you've had your hands on. Before we do that, though, since we're fairly deep in the show now, for those that don't know about you and about uh, high caliber history, I want to give you the floor for a few minutes here. Talk about kind of how you got to where you are now, where you started out, and and where you are now, if you don't mind. 
Sure. Let me grab my soapbox. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I have a, a background in historic preservation. Uh, that's what my degree is in historic preservation and museum studies. Um, I, I started out working uh, for the National Park Service when I was in college and right out of college. I was fortunate enough that even though I, I graduated right in the middle of the Great Recession, uh, that I came out gainfully employed. And so I worked for the National Park Service, and then I switched over and worked at the Smithsonian Institution, and I worked there for a few years, and then I happened to see that there was an opening at the NRA, National Firearms Museum. They were looking for a firearms specialist, and I thought, well, man, if I can combine my two loves, uh, you know, guns and museums, and, and magically get someone to pay me to play with them all day long, uh, instead of the other way around, that, that'd that be great. And I was fortunate enough to get that job. Uh, and I did that for uh, a number of years. And so I, I worked in the museums division there, um, which dealt with the National Firearms Museum in, in Fairfax, Virginia, the Sporting Arms Museum in Springfield, Missouri, and uh, the uh, Frank Brownell Museum of the, of the Southwest in Raton, New Mexico at the Whittington Center. Um, so very diverse collection of firearms there. I also managed the uh, collection of NRA's affiliated gun collector clubs. There was about, there's about a hundred of them throughout the country uh, and they get together and put on shows twice a year. Um, private collectors showcasing their pieces uh, and, and uh, displaying for different uh, cash and physical awards and stuff. Um, so got to meet a lot of great people through that uh, and handle a lot of remarkable firearms in, in that regard. Um, but after a handful of years of, of doing that grind, I decided uh, that I, I could do more uh, out on my own. And so in 2018, I, I branched out and opened up High Caliber History and started doing that full time. Uh, and so I do a lot of different uh, writing and research work for a variety of online and print publications. Um, I also do uh, consulting. Um, I do guest speaking uh, and I'm working. I work with uh, a number of different auction houses as well. Um, I've done work in the past with Rock Island. Um, I've done work uh, recently uh, with Lewis and Grant uh, in Kentucky. And a variety of other places, and so it's it's uh, it's been a very circuitous route to get where I'm at. Um, there there is absolutely no straight line that I followed to get here. Um, you know, normally if people ask me, they say, "How how did you manage to get to do what you do?" And I said, "I did it very carefully, because uh, because I really <laughs> uh, it is not lost on me how incredibly fortunate I am to to be able to love what I do and do what I love." Um, and so I'm, I, I don't work a day in my life cause I'm having a ton of fun doing what I'm doing. Um, and I was just fortunate enough to, to blend all of these passions together and make it work because, you know, generally speaking, the firearms community in general is more conservative and the museum world is more liberal, uh, and to be able to find a way to mesh the two of those together is not always the easiest thing to do. Uh, so I'm, I'm very fortunate that I found a way to finesse those two things together. Right. Um, so, yeah, with that, um, as far as those museums go, great segue. 
Um, what are some, if, if folks were planning a vacation or a trip to, let's say, different, you know, whatever parts of the country, and they wanted to do that around a museum that has some really cool firearms, what mm-hmm. are some of your recommendations and why? Sure. Uh, well, you know, for starters, uh, I would definitely recommend the National Sporting Arms Museum in Springfield, Missouri, because uh, that's that's in the Bass Pro Shops headquarters there. Uh, so you can you can go and do a little bit of shopping while you're while you're at it. Um, great collection of firearms on display there. I'm a little biased, but um, lots of great guns, you know. So if you're right there in the heart of the Midwest, you know, in, in Missouri, definitely check out that museum. If you find yourself a little further west in Wyoming, uh, I highly recommend going to the Buffalo Bill Center of the West, which of course has the Cody Firearms Museum in it. But it, that's that's also a museum complex. There's a total of five museums there, and uh, and there yeah, there's amazing firearms in the Cody Firearms Museum, but the other museums in that complex as well also have some firearms because you can't really talk about the West without talking about firearms. Um, I would then also recommend uh, if you find yourself in the Tulsa area, um, first and foremost, go to the Wanamaker Tulsa Arms Show held twice a year in in April and November, because even though that is a gun show, uh, that is a museum with price tags as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So if you uh, can't find it at Tulsa, it doesn't probably didn't make it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Absolutely. Yep. So, so yeah, you know, go, go to the Tulsa arms show. Um, and then while you're there, you know, not far from there, uh, is the, uh, JM Davis arms museum. And that's an interesting facility in that it holds the distinction of being the largest privately owned, uh, firearms collection in the country. Um, and it is co-administered with the state of Oklahoma, which is really cool. Um, so there's, there's lots of great guns in, in those museums. If you find yourself up in new England, definitely stop by, uh, the Springfield Armory national historic site in Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, go in and see the amazing displays of firearms that, that they have on display at the arsenal there. Um, so yeah, there's, there's museums all over the country with that, you know, and that's not even touching on different military museums that are throughout. Um, it's, there's a little bit of something everywhere, but, uh, I would think those are probably the, the big ones that, that you can hit, you know, um, to a lesser extent, uh, there is an impressive arms gallery at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. They've got really? some interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got some interesting things there. Uh, same with the Gene Autry Museum out in California. They've got uh, an amazing collection of firearms there, too. So some places that you might not necessarily think of, you know, New York City and Los Angeles, California. Right. Um, but uh, but there are some great gun collections there as well. So, yeah. Now, you know, what I like, and it's, it's more of a Texan thing and then also... You know, I guess if you were really into the West enough for Texas Rangers and stuff like that, it's the Texas Ranger Museum uh, here in uh, Waco. Um, you know, not super heavy. I mean, it's the Texas Ranger Museum, but obviously firearms are you know a part of that. So uh, there's some some pretty cool stuff. I, I'm glad to hear you bring up both the Wanamaker Tulsa Arms Show and Tulsa because uh, I don't know if I'm going to make. Uh, 
the J.M. Davis Museum this trip or not. I've definitely got to get back in there. I know I've been, good Lord, a half a dozen times before. And every time you go in, no matter how many hours you spend, you're going to find stuff you didn't see before. Yep. Uh, it's that massive of a collection. And you mentioned it be a, a private collection. The dude that owns that collection is buried there. So, uh, Yes, he <laughs> is. A, buried among his, the guns. With his Gatlin gun, by God. So yep. uh, that's that's pretty cool. The mausoleum, they call it. It's a pretty cool area. There were certain guns. He said, when I go, those go with me. And so they're all in the mausoleum, which is pretty cool. But uh, yeah. yeah, no, back to uh, Tulsa. Looking forward to getting up to the Watermaker Tulsa Arms Show again in November. That's about three weeks off now. So uh, always a great time. And, you know, not everything there is for sale. Because I know I've I've ran into like the Smith and Wesson Collector Society. I've ran into the High Standard Collector Society, the Ruger's Collector Society. Um, there's several of uh, those type. I guess you would call them organizations or mm-hmm. or clubs or whatever yeah. that that set up stuff that is is pretty cool stuff to look at. There's a company, chances are they have a collector's organization, um, and I'm a member of a ton of them. I'm a member of Smith & Wesson Collectors, Colt Collectors, Winchester Collectors, Grand Collectors, um, and then I'm a member of, of you know, other uh, state-run groups, you know, the Virginia Gun Collectors, the Ohio Gun Collectors, which is the largest state organization one, um, the Dallas Arms Collectors, and, and all sorts of groups. Uh, and I would highly recommend, you know, you, you spend your 50 or 60 bucks, you know, a year and join those organizations, whether you own any of those guns or not, because they all put out, you know, sometimes it's quarterly, sometimes it's biannual. They all put out, uh, amazing publications that have fantastic private research that have been done by their members who, eat, sleep, and breathe that specific brand uh, and sometimes a specific maker model of firearm. And you're going to get information out of there that you're not going to find anywhere else. Um, and oftentimes not even going to find it in the, the reference books that are out there. Um, and so I, I have, you know, entire shelves full of just back issues of different collector association journals uh, because they are just as valuable, if not more valuable than some of the books I have. We've got a couple of, looks like, museum recommendations out there. Got one right here from Rich White. He says, a Civil War Museum in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania has some cool Civil War arms on display. So, mention that one. And then uh, 45 ACP says, Gold Star Military Museum north of Des Moines. That's some unique military uh, stuff. Says, minutes off of, uh, what, I-80 at Camp Dodge. So, uh, good stuff for those that may be planning uh, some type of a of a trip. So let's move from, um, yeah, let's move from the museums into the actual farms themselves. Before we do that, though, uh, for everybody out there, there is a poll, uh, and we'll uh, close that poll out here shortly and take a look and see where we land on that. Uh, asking how many of you listening on uh, antique firearms, stuff made before 1898. So as far as the cream of the crop that you've had your hands on, let's let's talk about some of that stuff. So because I know you were uh, you were telling me that the picture in the thumbnail 
uh, for this. You were telling me that that was a few million dollars worth just sitting on that table. So what are, yeah. uh, what are some of the cool stuff that you've, you've been able to actually touch? Yeah. Yeah. God, and there's, there's been a lot. I've, I've been very fortunate, but uh, there's great stuff. Like, like you mentioned in that thumbnail, in that photo there, the gun that I was holding uh, is one of the Briggs patent uh, Winchester rifles, which is uh, one of the handful of guns that I call it kind of like the missing link uh, in between the Henry and Winchester developments. Um, so that Briggs rifle is very cool. There's a video on that gun on my channel. Uh, I have held the actual uh, engraved pattern gun, Winchester 1886, that they used for their uh, Winchester highly embellished arms catalog that originally came out. And I think it was 1897. There's also a video on that on the channel. Um, there are only three Parker Invincible shotguns in the world. Um, I have handled all three of those. Um, they've got an insurance value of about 1.3 million each on those guns. Whoa. Yeah. Um, I have been fortunate enough to handle a pair of pistols that were owned by George Washington and they were given to him by the Marquis de Lafayette. And after Washington passed, you know, he had no children. So it went to, uh, some of his other heirs and it ended up finding its way into the hands uh, of President Andrew Jackson. Um, so that's an interesting Whoa. trifecta of Lafayette, Washington, and Jackson all owning this pair of pistols. Um, there's a video on that on, on my channel as well. Now, what, what are those, what are those pistols? Uh, they are a pair of uh, very beautiful uh, embellished flintlocks that were made in, uh, in Saarbrück, um, which was Germany at the time. Um, and the Marquis special ordered them as a gift for George Washington. Um, because, you know, as I said, Washington had no kids, uh, and the Marquis viewed, uh, the general very much as a father figure. Um, in fact, he actually ended up naming one of his children after George Washington. Um, and so, so yeah, those, those are really cool guns. There's airtight provenance on those, um, when the Marquis came through for a tour of the United States in 1826 on the 50th anniversary of our independence, he actually stopped at Andrew Jackson's Hermitage in Tennessee and Jackson pulled out the pistols. And you know, oh, as wow. the story goes, he's, he asked him, he said, you know, do, do you recognize these guns? And he said, well, yes, those are the ones that I gave to my friend, uh, General Washington. Um, wow. And so, yeah, so just just such very, very cool, impressive, historic guns, um, you know, pieces owned and, and shot by Annie Oakley, um, and, and just tons of other stuff. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Now, <laughs> now when you talk about Annie Oakley, when you talk about some of the, I guess we'll call them exhibition shooters, trick shooters of the time. So you've, mm -hmm. you've obviously kind of handled and inspected some of their firearms, right? Mm -hmm. Is there anything different? Like you would think a competitive shooter today uses something a little bit off the beaten path, right? Not right. standard production. Are there any tweaks or anything that's that you see to those that are made to maybe make them handle better or be more accurate? Right. You know, with, well, with, with Annie Oakley, um, absolutely not. That was one of the things she was famous wow. for was that she shot 
standard run-of-the-mill guns. Uh, you know, you pull it off the rack and that's what she's going to shoot with. Now, that's not to say she didn't have some very beautiful, you know, engraved and inlaid guns, but we all know that engraving doesn't make you shoot better. Just like, you know, you can, you can, you can stipple your Glock and, and if you suck, it's, it's not the Glock's fault. It's still you. So, um, so yeah, Annie shot standard competition guns, uh, or not, not competition guns, but standard production guns. Um, then you get into, you know, some, some more, uh, you know, like 20th century stuff, like guys like Ed McGivern, um, and Ed shot, you know, pretty much standard stock guns. Uh, there's a couple that, uh, he has almost kind of fits special them, you know, the front of the trigger guard is, is cut off of the revolver, um, for a little bit faster access to, to the trigger, but you know, beyond that, you know, it's not like they're doing, you know, amazing trigger jobs or anything on them like that. Um, you know, the, the idea of, you know, really tuning a gun for competition shooting or trick shooting, I think is a lot more of a modern thing, you know, um, folks just weren't tinkering with them like that back then. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting consider the process to manufacture back then in a way, you know what I mean? I mean, it was right more of a hands-on type, you know, hand fitting type situation and, and all of that. And I guess, would you say that for the time, right? When we're talking, let's say late 1800s type era, would you say for the time, those guns without all the modern machining and the, that sort of, were they tighter, more accurate, more well-built, typically firearms than what we see? Not to knock modern companies, but did that process lend itself for the time, right? Taking into consideration the time, did it lend itself to actually better firearms? Like they really don't make them like they used to? I would say yes and no. Um, you know, if if John Moses Browning had access to, you know, polymer extrusion and, <laughs> and stuff true. that we have today, you can bet your bippy that that Moses himself is is going to be using modern manufacturing techniques because he wants the best gun out on the market. Um, but, you know, the flip side to that is, you know, you look at a beautiful turn of the 20th century polished Colt double action revolver. You're not going to get that kind of polishing on a gun today. Uh, it, it, you, you and I don't want to pay for what it's going to cost right. to pay someone to polish that gun. Um, so I, I, I would say that at any given point in time, you know, they were making the best guns that they could, Uh, and there are certainly instances today where, you know, we're cutting corners and, you know, you got mem parts and stuff and people are like, Oh, why don't they go back to the way they used to? And, but at the same time, you know, if, if you were to bring them forward, they'd be like, wait, we, we can do this faster and easier. Hell yeah. Let's do it faster and easier, you know? So, um, it's at the end of the day there, they are still businesses, um, and, and the bottom line is the bottom line, you know, and of course that's, there will always be exceptions, you know, and you've got companies like Nighthawk, uh, you know, or, or guys, uh, over at heirloom precision, you know, and their goal is to create a one-off gun, uh, and it's quality over quantity. 
But of course, that's different than Remington or Colt or Smith and Wesson. So it's it's kind of an apples to oranges thing there. So there was a question up here, and you know, you got you got to talking, and it reminded me. It was like, oh, I see the question up here. That was a, a really good question, and I can't find it. So forgive me. Ah, here it is. It was it was Chris who put it out. Uh, he says, "Do you guys think reproductions will increase in value?" So, since how you've seen so much of the old stuff, I do want to talk reproduction for a minute. So, you've got the original, and then you've got reproductions, and then you've got a series of reproductions and modern reproductions, right? So, people think reproduction, and they think modern stuff, but there are some old stuff that are reproductions, correct? Yes, absolutely. And the perfect example of that is Navy Arms and uh, and Val Forget, uh the uh, third, who runs the company now. His dad started it. Um, Val's a good friend of mine. I love Val. Um, Navy Arms does great stuff. Uh, and they kind of pioneered the concept of the Italian import arms uh, that, that we all know and love by so many different companies today. Um, and so, yeah, the, the concept of reproduction guns have been around, you know, for more than more than half a century. You know, um, and and like you said, yeah, people tend to think that it's it's new stuff, you know, that, that it's this new idea of, oh, let's have these Italians or these Spanish, you know, make these guns and, and, and turn them out. But that's just not the case. And, and it, it goes even further back than that. Uh, and and you kind of tweak the definition of what you want to call a reproduction. But, you know, there are companies in Spain, particularly, uh, you know, that uh, around the turn of the 20th century are making copies of uh, of Smith & Wesson revolvers and Colt revolvers and trying to market them, you know, exactly the same. And they are, I mean, they're basically, it's patent infringement, <laughs> you right. know, uh, they're, they're really toeing that line, um, you know, so is that kind of a reproduction? It, it is, but it isn't, you know, just like you can buy a new birdie single action army that is, but isn't. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's not a new concept. Um, uh, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, you know, because there've always been guns that are out of reach price wise for folks and the reproductions are a nice way to get into it. But to go back to the initial question as to whether or not I think the reproductions are going to go up in value. My gut says no, um, just because it is a reproduction, you know, by its very nature, it's, it's not the real deal, the genuine article bona fide, right? Um, now, if you're dealing with something that is a reproduction and also like a special edition, like Henry repeating arms, put out, you know, the original 1860, uh, in the different engraved editions that they have, uh, you know, and those are a couple thousand dollars a piece new, um, stuff like that. Yeah. Probably will go up in value. Um, but you know, uh, I, I would not go out and, and buy, uh, a new birdie copy of a Colt 1851 Navy cap and ball revolver and keep it new in box in my safe in the hopes that right. 50 years from now I can retire on it. So, right. 
So, uh, yeah, I guess with that, let's take a look. Let's stop the poll and see if we're surprised by uh, the poll numbers out there. So thank you to everybody that participated in the poll. Waiting on those numbers to come up. YouTube takes forever to calculate that. And so do you own any antique pre-1898 firearms? And 67%, so about two-thirds there. Says no, 33%, 32% anyway, says yes. So um, I'm not necessarily surprised by that, but um, for those 67%, I'm going to say those are rookie numbers and you need to pump those numbers up. So that's right. Uh, get out there. And uh, as we talked about with Chris earlier, especially the places like the Wanamaker Tulsa Arms Show, uh, you can find pre 1898 stuff that is reasonable and, you know, it will fire and you can take it to the range and you can play around and have a little fun. So I will definitely uh, encourage you to do that. There's just something about, and to me, it doesn't even have to be the 1898, you know, anything a hundred years old. There's something about going out on the range and shooting a firearm. That's a hundred years old. Well, at this point, that's 1921 and you can buy a lot of stuff cheap from 1921 back for sure. Yep. Absolutely. Um, single shot shotguns there's all kinds of cool things right um that you could probably pick up a 19 teen, in, in the teens you know a uh, single shot shotgun for 100 bucks there's almost no doubt there's one of those right. in a gun shop pawn shop somewhere yep. uh, and to be able to take that firearm out and cut down around on a 100 year old firearm there's just something cool about that regardless of what it's worth Right. The enjoyment yep. you get out of just feeling the history in that sometimes uh, is really Absolutely. awesome. Yeah. You, know, you pull the trigger on it and think to yourself, my God, Woodrow Wilson was president when this thing was made, you know, <laughs> just goofy things like and if that. It could, that. If it could tell stories. Right. Yeah. How many exactly. how many owners has it has it had when. When it went from one owner to the next, why was it sold? Was it given as a gift? Was it given as a gift? Was it sold because somebody had to feed their family and they had nothing else to sell? Was it stolen? Right. Way yeah. back in the day before serial numbers or anything else? Was it stolen potentially? You know, sure. did you get into some of the more morbid stuff that you think about what could what could have possibly happened with it? But you know, how many yeah. deer did it kill? How many squirrels right. or rabbits? You know, how many how many times was this used to feed their family or defend their livestock from coyotes or whatever it might be? Um, sure. It's just crazy when you start thinking about that because that time frame, that part of Americana, and that's the reason that you've got the H&Rs, the Iber Johnsons, and the myriad of other brands, is they were selling firearms literally mail order, feed stores, department stores, any, any store Everywhere. you walked into, any store you walked into, general store, well, anything. They had some type of firearm there for, for sale. Why? Because it was self-reliance. Whether you needed that for, to defend your family or you needed that to provide for your family or protect your livestock or whatever it might be. Um, yep. Just a great time in American history. Um, Logan, going to give you a few minutes here. Again, I've got the... Uh, YouTube as well as the Instagram link uh, for high caliber history down in the description below. So check that out. Going to give you a few minutes to uh, just kind of close out here other than uh, YouTube and Instagram. Is there any place else that people can follow you? And 
Uh, is there anything they need to be looking for? Anything coming up they need to be aware of? Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, the one-stop shop is go to highcaliberhistory.com. Um, and there you can find, I've got a, a blog that has all sorts of stuff on there. Um, of course, you know, sub to the, the YouTube channel, um, follow on Instagram and Facebook. Um, should you feel so inclined, there is a Patreon that's set up. Um, and I would appreciate having your support over there if that's something you're interested in. Um, as I mentioned, I write for a lot of different uh, online publications and places that you'll see my stuff crop up, you know, uh, places like Ammo Land, Free Range American, Coffee or Die, uh, Field and Stream sometimes, and then, uh, you know, print publications as, as well. Of course, that's on a, a slower schedule, but um, yeah. And, and if you have questions about anything that you have, you know, I'm wondering about granddad's this or that, or, you know, how do I care for this, that, and the other, you know, go to my website, highcaliberhistory.com, uh, and, and send me a message. You know, there's, there's my email addresses on there. It's easy. It's highcaliberhistory at gmail.com, but, you know, send me a note, um, and I'll, I'll see if I can help you. No guarantees that I can. Um, but, uh, there's a good chance that if I don't know the answer, I probably know someone who does. Uh, and so we, you know, we can steer you in the right direction, but again, you can find everything at highcaliberhistory.com. Follow on all the socials. Um, love to have you become a patron. Um, check it out. And I've tried to, there we go. Get the, uh, <laughs> get the video working right. We got a little flip flop there. So thanks again, Logan. Uh, for jumping in, everybody else out there, uh, Lucy, I think, uh, dropped the super chat. So thanks uh, again. You see it all the time scrolling below. But uh, shout out to my Patreon folks, the YouTube channel members, those at shop, clovertech.com slash shop. And then folks like Lucy who dropped those hard-earned dollars through a dollars to a super chat. So we're going to call this one uh, done and in the books. Uh, Till next time, don't forget to chain fire freedom. <laughs>